0: The Woodside Church podcast. We're looking, we're going to continue in our th- series on lessons from the wilderness. And uh, this, this morning, we're going from Exodus chapter two, 32 and a theme that's really come through our worship so powerfully. And I'll refer to some of the words we've had uh, as I go through. Uh, and the title that I've been given was destroy your idols. Okay, so you ready to do that? (laughs) Okay, so we need to read the scripture and see what it means. The book of Exodus, just by way of introduction, the book of Exodus that we've been studying tells the story of the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb and an act of great power in the Red Sea just as we are gathered together as a people because of the sacrifice of the lamb of God, the one who's a lion and the lamb and an act of great power when he rose from the dead conquering death forever. Amen. We are so it's uh, what was true of them in, in, in almost a picture of what God planned to do for the whole world. And, uh, and so that's what the book of Exodus teaches us. And then they entered the wilderness intended as preparation of the people of God as the, who can enter the promised land. And also a period of testing the, of their obedience as the people of God. So it was a time when they were waiting to get into the land And preparing, that was important, but also testing as to whether they would be an obedient people who would go into the inheritance that God had for them. And their identification as God's people was confirmed through a covenant, that is an agreement that God has with them, which Debbie preached about so well last week, and they would experience the blessing and protection as God's people and would promise to obey God's law. Summarised in the Ten Commandments that someone spoke about. I was preaching somewhere else then, but uh, a few few weeks ago. The first two of those Ten Commandments are relevant to the chapter I'm going to study today. And that is, this is uh, what it says about in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Okay, so that was the background to what we're doing. Now, as we come to the story of the chapter we're gonna read, I'm gonna read quite a bit of scripture uh, you know, sometimes there's a tendency for preachers to so get on to what they want to say that they don't actually read much of the Bible. Well, I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'm going to read this whole uh, section to you because in the end, that's even more important than what I've got to say. <laughs> okay, So let the words of the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, impact you. But what had happened was, Moses, um, having uh, had gone up into the mountain and uh, uh, received the Ten Commandments, but then he also received lots and lots and lots of other instructions, all sorts of details about how they worship God and how they offer sacrifices. And this took a long time, and he was actually up there altogether for forty days. But when they, when he went up, he didn't know, and the people didn't know how long he was going for so that's the background to this chapter so let's look at it together the words will go on the screen so you can follow it along so you can see it as well as hear it when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain they gathered around Aaron who was Moses' older brother come on they said make us some gods who can lead us We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, moulded it into the shape of a calf that is, but it comes clear later that he made a, a wooden image of this calf and then overlaid it with the gold of the earrings. Uh, when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were. You know, we get excited about the true God. It's possible to get excited about all sorts of things. And we just need to remember, watch that. How excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he answered, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry, which is a rather polite way of saying they got up to some things they shouldn't have done. Okay, (laughs) the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought back from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf and they bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I've seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone in my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. I'll explain all that. It seems a, bit <laughs> seems a bit of a strange thing to do. He said, Why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say that God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them so in the mountains and... Um, wiping them from the face of the earth. Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and I'll give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about The terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. When Joshua heard the disaster, Joshua was halfway down the mountain. He uh, was, couldn't go right up to the top, but he was halfway down. He wasn't in the camp, but he was uh, uh, waiting for Moses to come back. When Josh Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory, nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water and forced the people to drink it. Finally, he turned to Abraham, to Aaron, his brother, and demanded, What did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Don't get so upset, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. And they said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Talk about avoiding responsibility. Okay. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and shouted, All you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And the Levites gathered around him. Okay. Vivid story, isn't it? Don't you love Bible stories? But sometimes we get a bit puzzled by them, don't we, as well? What's all that about? Well, I'm going to go through the story again, explaining it a little bit and then teaching some things that come from it. So, the people of Israel had been in Egypt, do you know how long? 430 years. Okay? Now, because of that, even though they still knew they were Jews, their identity had become mainly Egyptian because they'd been so influenced by the culture in which they'd lived for 430 years. Okay? And they'd been massively influenced by Egyptian culture. And there are, I can suggest, two equivalents today of that. As you know, a number of the things uh, Silla and I have been involved with is helping people take the gospel into what we call unreached people groups. That is people that have never had the gospel in their culture. And uh, there's lots of places where that's happening. It's wonderful. But when we're helping people who get saved from a culture that has had no impact from the gospel ever, it can sometimes take two or three generations before they fully understand to live the Christian way. Because our culture so influences us, we don't realise it very often because we're just in it. Someone said, one missiologist said, the relationship between an individual and their culture is like the relationship between a fish and water. The fish hardly knows it's in water, but he can't exist out of water. And we're like that with our culture. And so it so influences us that when, a, when the message of a different sort of culture comes to us, takes a long time and when I say it takes two or three generations I don't don't, uh, condemn the earlier generations they're finding their way to follow Jesus okay that's a bit like these people were in Egypt however in many cultures that have been influenced by Christianity in the past like western culture what has happened is that we've sometimes not distinguished between what is genuine Christianity and what is the culture around us. And the two have become mixed together. And we adopt the things of our culture, often thinking they're almost, well, that's what Christians do. Because we've become identified with the culture in which we are even though we believe in Jesus and somehow our life is partly living for Jesus and partly living according to our culture. And sometimes we think the two are the same. And I'll explain, come back to apply that later. But that's what had happened to the people. They'd they'd become Egyptian in their culture. And in in Egypt, they'd grown up in a society devoted to a religious system known as idolatry. And it was common to represent gods by animals. You can still see that in Egyptian history and archaeology and so on today. All their gods looked like animals. And and so so they made this golden calf. Now calf, the trouble is, this has been so much in Christian tradition as the story of the golden calf that actually it's not quite that. Because when we think in English, I don't know about other languages represented here. When we think of English of a calf, we say, ah, a nice, you know, you go into a field, and you see cows and then this nice little, ah, nice little calf, okay. But actually, it didn't mean that. It was a young bull, fully grown, strong, but not yet you know, producing offspring and so on. So it's, it's not a calf in our sense. It's a young bull, fully grown. And that, to them, represented God, to the Egyptians, because God is powerful. A young bull is very powerful, and so on, and so that they and so that's how they uh, why they made this thing and so that was appropriate for an egyptian idea of a god and moses had not told the people how long he'd be up the mountain and the people of israel and the other ethnic groups that had traveled with them by the way something we again often forget when they came out of egypt the Israelites came out, but loads of others from other ethnicities who were similarly slaves in Egypt came out with them. Okay, They're often referred to as the mixed multitude and all that sort of stuff. You you can can read about it throughout the, the books about the wilderness. And God was very, very clear to them. He said, you must always treat... Other ethnicities, as if they were a true-born Israelite. In other words, no racial discrimination. That was there, right in their emergence from Egypt. Okay. So Moses had not told the people of God of uh, how long he'd be up the mount, uh, up the mountain, and. Uh, until then, Moses had been daily available. In fact, his father-in-law told Moses off for this because he was every day, he just sat there and all the people who had a problem came to Moses. And so he was always available. You want some wisdom? Go to Moses. Moses never had a day off. He never, you know, he, he was, and he got totally exhausted and his father-in-law came very wisely and said, This isn't a terribly good idea. You've got to appoint other leaders to help you. So Moses was totally available to them. Now he'd gone for 40 days. And so they said to, the people said to Aaron, Moses isn't here anymore. We've got no leadership. We don't know what to do. So Make us, we need something there. Make us some gods that we can say, these led us out of Egypt. Aaron, maybe reluctantly, joined in, took the gold earrings, made a wooden model of a young bull and covered it with molten gold. And they made offerings to it that should only be made to the Lord. they have been told to make offerings to the Lord and they, they got all mixed up. And so they were almost imitating true worship. they have been told you offer sacrifices to the gods. So they made this idol and then they said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt and they had a pagan style party described as a festival to the Lord. Yeah, so they were still acknowledging God, but worshipping him in a pagan way, with a pagan representation of who God was. That's what they were doing. That's called, if you want the technical term, syncretism. Okay, some of you like these words. Okay, syncretism means mixing true faith in god with practices that are ungodly from the culture that's what syncretism is when you take gospel sometimes it's you take the gospel to different places and they've always had sort of worship of ancestors for example and then you mix some of the practices of worship of ancestors with worshipping of God and the church gets all mixed up in that way it's obvious uh, when you see that in the culture but I would argue that much Western Christianity is syncretistic it mixes true faith with adopting the culture sorry I'm being a bit tough today but that's I was asked to do this chapter so I have to okay (laughs) Bit like Aaron, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> okay. Luke just asked me to preach this one this time. Okay. When he put the program together. So I'm doing what I'm told. Okay. And so God told Moses on the mountain what was going on. He says, The people have rejected me. And they rejected the covenant they just accepted. I'll wipe them out and make you, Moses, a great nation instead. In other words, it wouldn't be the people of Israel, because that was another name for Jacob. It would be the people of Moses. Moses could have felt quite good about that, couldn't he? He would go down in history. We wouldn't talk about Israelites. We'd talk about Mosesites. And that was, the, that was what God offered him. And I'll destroy these other people. And... And then it's then Moses started this bargaining with God. Now, to westernize, that sounds a funny thing to do, bargain with God. But actually those of you who have been who live in the East have been to the east know that bargaining is a way of life. Okay? Sometimes we Westerners go to the east and or into Africa and they start, we start bargaining and we're utterly useless and they charge us far more because we're wealthy tourists and we think we get a good bargain, but actually, they, you know, <laughs> they've really got us, <laughs> okay, because we're not terribly good at it. And that way of doing things, God was adapting to that way of doing things and trying to come to a bargain with Moses... And often when God says, I'm going to destroy people, it's in order to make sure, to see whether his servants will really stand up for the people and bargain with God or take all the credit for themselves. When Jonah went to Nineveh, or rather when he didn't go to Nineveh, you know why he didn't go? Because he knew that if he was going to give a warning, the people would repent and God would forgive them because God's like that. And Jonah didn't like Assyrians, they were the enemy, so he didn't want them to be forgiven, so he didn't want to go and preach the gospel to them or or even preach a warning to them because then they would repent and then God would forgive them. And so when you find this bargaining going on, like this with Moses, God said, come on Moses, you've got an opportunity to be a great person here. He was testing. Would Would he say no, no? And so what Moses did was actually take the promises of God and pray them back to him. God, you swore by an oath. You can read about that after, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 22. You swore by an oath that you would bless the people of Israel. You would make Abraham, the seed of Abraham, a mighty nation and bless all the nations of the earth. You're not going to give up your promises, are you? God likes us to pray like that. When things are not working out, He likes us to pray. God, you promised. It's a good way to pray. God, you've said this. It may take some time for it to be accomplished, but you take the promises of God and pray them. God likes that. And It may seem to be all going wrong, but you take God's promises and you start arguing with God on the basis of his promises so that his ultimate will is eventually done, which is to bless the people of Israel. Do you get that? Come on, talk to me. Do you get that? Because otherwise you read this and think, what's all this going on about God changed his mind and all this sort of stuff? No, this is the way God wants his people involved with his accomplishment of his purposes through their prayer life. Do you know that's what you're, when we pray as a church, we're bringing about the purposes of God because God has chosen. He could just do it, but he's chosen to involve us through our prayers. All right. So. Moses prayed on behalf of the people. God heard his prayer, but Moses had to deal with a serious situation which was an attack on the identity of the people of God. And so he smashed the wooden calf. He smashed the stone tablets as well, one which were the Ten Commandments. He had to go up the mountain again and get that done again. But <coughs> he smashed the golden calf, the young bull, mixed it with water, made the people drink it. The end challenged Aaron. Aaron blamed the people and their pressure on him rather than taking responsibility and suggested that the young bull appeared miraculously. Moses then called on the people either to stand for the Lord or stay in idolatry. And those who maintained idolatry actually died. Uh, it's difficult to understand for us that. Why not just forgive? But God is a judge as well, and God will judge the world on the last day. We mustn't leave that out in our strong, wonderful emphasis on the grace of God. Take away from the fact the fact what that what magnifies His grace is that. His attitude towards sin is to judge it, but his grace rescues us from it. Okay. So, here the issue was, will there be a people of Israel or just, or just Egyptian pagan Israelites? Okay. So, lessons then and now. What was idolatry then? Idolatry was attractive to people. We think of it as some horrible thing. But idolatry was very attractive. It was how almost every religion of that time functioned. Other than the Hebrew religion. And Douglas Stewart, a commentator on this, went through a number of advantages that people thought they got through through idolatry. And I want you to, as I go through these, think of parallels today. So firstly, it seemed it brought guaranteed benefits. The belief basically was this, that the gods of the nations could do anything except feed themselves. And so, if you offered a food in front of an idol, the god behind the idol would bless you with fertility in your crops and prosper you. Paul also taught that behind the idols were demons. Okay, so although an idol is nothing, there's demonic power behind it. And what you had to do was just offer them food. And that still happens in many parts of the world today. You just bring food before a shrine to an idol. And then the, the... demon behind well they believe it's the God behind will bless your crops it's selfish it's a materialistic way of worshipping for personal benefit that's pretty close isn't it we'll serve God if he does this for us it was easy just off of food There was no ethical requirement to live differently. This was quite a nice religion. All you had to do was offer food to this idol. He would bless you and you didn't have to change your life. You could live as as, as you liked as long as you did that. It was convenient. They had household gods. They had gods in high places near where they lived. Worship for Israel was sacrificial. They had to go to Jerusalem three times a year. That demanded sacrifice. Idolatry was easy. They could just worship in their home. I say, what's the? You know, as Christians We rejoice that one sacrifice has been made for our forgiveness and that's unchangeable. But the Bible also says, because of this, once we know the mercy of God, do you know the mercy of God? Hello? (laughs) The wonderful mercy of God to me, a useless sinner. He then says, and so I, I offer my bodies as a living Sacrifice, which is the intelligent way to worship. Worship isn't only the wonderful songs we sing and I really appreciated all you led us in, Katie, today. But worship is, I'm giving my life, my body and everything to God. It's inconvenient. It's quite convenient just to come to church on a Sunday and sing. And... Living my life for God? It was normal in every culture. No one laughed at you for being an idolater. Every culture did it. They could be loyal to this. They had a personal God, a family God, and a national God. Often later when they strayed away, the, the people of God in later years they would worship their family God. You can read about that in Book of Judges and places like that. They would so they would have a personal God, they'd have a family God, but their national God was Yahweh. Okay? So they mixed it all up. It was self-indulgent. Just give the God a bit of your meat, then enjoy yourself. Which is what they did here. And it was usually erotic. Often, not in, not in Exodus 32, but later on in, in the wilderness journey, they went so far into uh, idolatry that they visited the uh, what, prostitutes who were there in the temples in order for you to have a fertility rite w- with them. That was how it was. Okay. What is idolatry now? <laughs> okay, it's not that? You might right. What is it now? Well, some cultures it's still like that. For us, it's giving allegiance to God and trusting in his benefits but living practically by other motivations other than just to please God. Okay? The temptation to serve idols for Christians may not be wrong in themselves. Indeed, they're often good. Jonathan, in his prophetic word, mentioned some of them. Career, Family, material things, nice house. No, there's nothing wrong in those. Nothing wrong in having a nice house. Yeah? Good thing to clean your house up and make it look nice. But if the motivation is that rather than, yeah, I want my house to be a place where I can serve God, where I can offer hospitality to God's people, where I can welcome unbelievers in and give them a nice place to come. You understand? What's the motivation? So I know this is hard and we're all challenged by it all the time. Syncretism, as in Exodus 32, combines worship with God, worship of God, with living according to our culture. Now, the most obvious idols of Western culture—and some of you come from different cultures—but just our materialism. We find our security in and devotion to Mammon rather than God. You know, it's a constant temptation. There was a time in our lives, Facilla and me, as you, many of you know where we just gave up a salary and lived by faith to serve the church and we didn't have any salary coming in, we didn't, uh, we didn't know how long that would be for. And In a sense, when we were doing that, we felt very free. And then when we start getting a salary again, you start relying on that. And now we're relying on our pension, you know. <laughs> Because I'm old and retired. But the. Do you understand? It's. Now, obviously, it's good to have a salary. But that should not take away your trust of God. And you're free to use the blessings God gives you to bless others because you don't have to hold on to them because God will provide for you. So you can be generous. Materialism. So we give generously and regularly as a sign that none of our money belongs to us, it all belongs to God. Secondly, sex, eroticism. You know, now in our culture around and what our younger people are growing up in, Intimacy, when you read about it in magazines and so on, is all about sex. The Bible doesn't look at it that way. The Bible talks about friendship as being intimacy. Yeah, just friendship, not with sex, just friends, sharing life. And almost people can't, you can't almost do that now because you'll, you'll be suspected of. Same, you know, same-sex relationships and all that sort of thing in the sexual sense. Was well, actually we're meant to be intimate with one another, of friendship, brotherly love, sisterly love. All these things are talked about. In the a lot of our secular culture today totally contrary to the New Testament honouring of celibate singleness. Okay. The New Testament, that was honoured. Paul was single and celibate. That's he didn't have sex. And he had friendships. He talked about dear friends all the time. Jesus and John had a strong friendship David and Jonathan the same Bible commends that but sex in the western culture is replacing all of that and power can be career success at any price can could be bullying behaviour. My opinion must dominate and prevail. Ambition to get to the top, whatever happens in work society or even church. Abuse and control in marriage and so on. Okay, so those are obvious ones. Sorry, my time's gone. Can you bear with me two or three more minutes? Please. I'm sorry. I... It's a complicated thing to explain this. I'm nearly finished. Then there's other things are more subtle and are all good but become ad- idols. Like marriage and family. What? In some cultures I go to, marriage, uh, families can be controlling. I remember going to one place, there was a great family in a church big extended family, lots of brothers and one of them was my interpreter sometimes. I went back a a couple of years later and uh, there was a church in the east and none of the family were there. So I said, what's happened to them? Why is so-and-so not able to translate for me anymore? Oh, one son uh, did something wrong and the leaders of the church had to Rebuke him for it. They didn't put him out. They just rebuked him. The whole extended family left the church because they got offended. What's happened there? Family and the fence to the family was more important than the church community. Okay? It was controlling. I could give you lots of other examples, but I haven't got time. And sometimes the God given marriage and care for family can exclude serving and being part of a wider community in the family of God. And Debbie De Silva brought a word about that. This church is the family. So. I remember years ago, Sue and I went on a marriage enrichment course. You know, we thought we needed a bit of help. And so, well, and someone, people, people, other people thought we needed a bit of help and persuaded us to go on this course, you see. And it was all right. Didn't enrich our marriage particularly. But <laughs> the whole thing was just focused on us two. And we thought, now our marriage is to bless the world. Do you understand? Our marriage isn't just for us. Our marriage is to provide a home where lots of people can come to. Our marriage is a place where the church uh, can be, we can actually start a church in our homes. Do you understand? It got so focused in instead of being a blessing to the world. One, I read, I'm reading a book at the moment by a Christian leader who, for very good reasons, is single and celibate. Doesn't get involved in sexual relationships. And he writes this: It can be an incredibly lonely life, unless that is we take Jesus' definition of family and really live in it. unless we notice Paul's experience of family and work together to copy it, unless we wake up to the radical New Testament idea that church really is family and that mum, dad and 2.4 children as the only family is just an unhealthy late 20th century construct. After all, before that, most people lived in larger intergenerational family groups. Jesus... Cared for his family. He cared for his mother. Family is important. But he also said, when his mum tried to take control of him, he said, looked around and everyone said, the one who does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. That was radical. Do you understand? Otherwise, our... Family, even which is the wonderful, wonderful thing God has planned, it. it can become idolatrous if it's not used to serve the people of God and serve the world. Do you understand? Paul talked about he talked about he wrote writing letters. And he said, "I'm oh, so and so. Greet Rufus and his mother. She's my mother too." Now she wasn't literally his mother, but she was like it. And then finally, things that are good in themselves, things like, no, I haven't got time. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. And uh, I'm, uh, parents need to go and get their children. I'm sorry I've been so long. But when you get a complicated chapter like this with lots of things to explain, I hope it's helpful, but I hope you live it too. Okay, and all the things that are good that you're involved with, don't let become idols. Your career, your salary, your family, your, don't let them become idols. Live solely for God and use all you have to bless, to worship him, bless his people and bless the world around us. Amen. Amen. Okay. I hope that helps. <clears throat> Father, oh, this chapter seems so distant from us. None of us would go and throw our earrings in and make calves out of it. But Lord, you speak to us today from your ever living word, not to mix up the idols of our culture with true worship of you. Father, help your church to live totally clear of it. Lord, I pray, and help us to tear every idol from our hearts down and serve you alone and use all the blessings we have given us to serve your people and serve the world. Lord, we pray, change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people who agreed with it said, Amen. amen. This is a Woodside Church Podcast.